Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and I'm delighted to moderate our discussion this afternoon. So welcome to What We Need is a Monetary Revolution, Not a Payments Revolution. As the title suggests, we may already have had our payments revolution. The slow response of the banks to digital technology created room for a new type of payments service provider or PSP to accompany the surge in e-commerce, which followed the founding of the internet. Some of those, PayPal, its subsidiary Venmo, Square, Stripe, Revolut, WeChat, Alipay, and the rest have become brand names in their own right. Others like Apple Pay, Google Pay, Telegram Pay have become extensions of existing brands. I'm told by somebody who's compiling a directory of PSPs that he's found around 10,000 of them now competing for payments business all around the world. But apart from making it easier to pay, which is something banks should have done many years ago, and making life more difficult for banks as a result of that, and of course making a small number of very well-known people extremely wealthy, PSPs don't seem to have actually changed that much. They all rely on the existing payment infrastructures, they all rely on central banks to issue fiat currency, and they rely on retail banks to continue to do a terrible job in terms of customer service. Yet, a more radical approach is now becoming evident in cryptocurrency and DeFi markets. What if the transfer of value, i.e. a payment, is just another piece of data that makes up a transaction? A data set that confirms the existence and whereabouts of the goods being bought and sold, confirms the seller's good for the goods, confirms the buyer is good for the money, confirms the identity of both parties, calculates and pays any taxes levied on the transaction, like VAT, publishes the invoice, initiates the delivery process, finds the lowest cost source of the value that is to be transferred from the buyer to the seller, and above all, transfers the value directly between digital wallets rather than via accounts provided by banks and accessed by PSPs. Now to ponder this possible future in which payments are just another part of an open data economy, I'm joined by three experts who've forgotten far more about this subject than I've ever known. Nick Ogden is the founder of Payment Processor World Pay, the agency bank Cashflows, the clearing bank ClearBank, and in his latest venture, rtgs.global, a global interbank liquidity network. Chris Hamilton is a financial markets infrastructure expert who's worked in clearing and settlement with the ASX on the new payments platform in Australia and with BankServe Africa, the largest automated clearinghouse in Africa. Joe Higginson is an international payments expert who's now chief commercial officer at Identity, where he helps banks adjust their technology platforms to the challenges of digitalization. In addition to our panelists, we of course, as always have you, our audience, and all four of us encourage all of you to submit questions, comments throughout this webinar by using the Q&A or chat functionality at the bottom of the screen. I won't be saving those questions and comments up to the end. I'll uh, force our panelists to address them as we go along making sure that you too can be an integral part of this discussion right from the outset. Now we've got lots to discuss, so I'd like to, to get our conversation going straight away. And I'd like to begin by asking our panelists whether they think I'm right to be so disappointed uh, by the change in how we pay for goods and services. And Nick, I'd like to come to you first. You've founded one of the great success stories uh, of the payments revolution of the last 20 years or so, WorldPay. Am I right to say that the payments revolution has delivered little uh, but an improved experience for consumers, plus a huge transfer of value from bank shareholders to, to fintechs, and in particular to the small group of very wealthy people. Uh, after all, I sometimes think that Elon Musk wouldn't be planning a trip to Mars uh, if banks hadn't allowed PayPal to exist 
in the first place. So Nick, am I right to be disappointed or should I be happier than I appear to be? It's an interesting question. I think you probably need to be somewhere in between um, because I think you need to recognize that a lot of the innovation that we use today, you know, e-commerce et al, uh, has come from not within banks, but from within an emerging um, technology marketplace, which is now known as fintech. Um, you know, we built the world's first online shop back in 1994, creating e-commerce and all the rest of it. Um, and that was, you know, an experiment between people before we went to the pub. It was that, that sort of level of uh, entrepreneurship. Um, but if you actually then sort of follow that track through and then you look at what's happened over the course of the last few years, um, I think you do have a right to hold the views that you've got. You know, 15 years ago, we had the global financial crisis. And the global financial crisis was caused by the fact that the banks didn't know where the money was. You know, the absence of liquidity visibility, the absence of seeing where the assets were and understanding that the, the value of those assets led to that crisis. Um, and ironically, every bank in the world every day today will have a customer ask them the same question, which is, where is the money? So 15 years on, not a lot has changed. And then the, the, the final part for that is that um, the cost of all of this, you know, how can we call it dithering? Is that polite on this? But anyway, you'll understand what I mean. Dithering in dealing with the issue of um, interbank clearing costs $15 trillion a year in inefficiency. Now, that's not my number. That's a number that came out from discussions with the IMF uh, in Washington in relation to our RTGS global project. But if you've got a, a global system that's supporting innovation and payments, that's designed to be supporting the economy and businesses and consumers moving their money around, and you know, let's not forget it, moving their own money around, that's not the bank's money, um, then I think you're right to, ha to have your view. You know, time has to change, but is it a question of radical change to something brand new that we all have to wrestle with, or is it a question of actually fixing what we've already got to make it more efficient? Thanks, Nick. Joe, perhaps I could tempt you to, to think about this, this question as well. Mm. Uh, one, of my, one of my allegations, I suppose, is that, is that all these um, PSPs are running on the same old rails, which is the payments industry's term for, for infrastructure. Uh, now, can we imagine a, a different world of the type I've outlined where payments or value is moving directly from one digital wallet to another without having to run on the existing rails or through the existing intermediaries? Uh, yes, it, it already does in a way. You've got a lot of um, ecosystems that allow book transfers already, right? I mean, there's banks in the UK that allow you to pay contacts within each other and it doesn't effectively go through rails. It's just a balance transfer within one ledger. Um, but you, I, I think the, the other way, I, I agree with Nick, The it's somewhere in between. Disappointing, yes, but payments... Uh, for a very long period of time, we're only ever seen as a utility, right? And I mean, I've been in payments for only 25 years, but in that time, payments has only become in vogue in the last five to 10. So before that, everyone thought my job was very boring. Um, but it, it, until it became more, I suppose, more of a focus point, that's when you started to see the real innovation explode. Well, I have certainly. Um, it used to be a, a mechanism of always trying to reconfigure systems that were built for one thing to try and reuse it for another and another, which has sort of led to a bit of apathy. Um, 
because of that mentality of always seeing it as a utility, there's there's a lot of financial institutions that still think of a payment as a utility, not as an opportunity to innovate. So that's what I think causes the disappointment. But it has progressed a long way, albeit um, the only ones that have innovated around getting wallet-to-wallet type payments are the closed ecosystems. And, and the problem there that creates is there's no interoperability, right? There's no interoperability from one wallet within one bank to another one. It has to go through that old set of rails, uh, as new as they might be. <laughs> mm-hmm. Chris, um, you heard Nick talk about a $15 trillion tax on the, on, on the productive economy, world trade, uh, which is levied by the by the payments industry, by all the people taking a bite out of these various transactions that, that are going on. But I, I'd like you to address that. But I'd also like you to, to think about a philosophical question here, which is implicit in the title of what uh, of the whole session. That you know, payments are this are this product of money. Um, money, famously defined as as anything people will accept in payment. Um, have we spent too much time in the last, views differ between Nick and, and Joe how far back this goes, but it's somewhere between five and 10 years that nothing uh, substantive has happened, but however long it is, have we focused too much on methods of payment, not enough on what we're using to make the payments with the money as opposed to the payments? Well, um, I think you're right to say we focused a lot on that, whether in a competitive economy you had much choice is a bit of a question in my mind. So let's, let's just take a step back and say, you know, what has delivered the monetary system we had, um, the bank and central bank-driven monetary system, it has been the building of collaborative connections between the banks and the central banks to deliver end-to-end payments. Um, that Um, gives you an astoundingly powerful network effect so that within one currency anyway, you've got universal reach. And it was was a great achievement of the banks to do that and to criticise them for doing that too slowly or not moving that fast enough. It's a little bit like taking the entire auto industry and saying, you cars companies should all do X. Well, they're a bunch of competitors. Their job is to compete with each other and to find points of differentiation, right? It's an unfamiliar position for me to be the apologist for banks, but I, f- I feel like that's a little bit harsh. Their outstanding achievement was to create global, global networks like Visa, like Swift, at a time when very few other industries were able to do that. And they did it successfully, and they did it so that I could get on a plane in Sydney and get off a plane in Kazakhstan and use my credit card. That, that's actually a remarkable achievement, and that is a product of the banking system, right? So. Now, so that, that's that. You can't, um, that's not the end of the story though, right? Um, what we're seeing right now is the step change in networks um, that is a feature of all network products. So you get a set of rails, you exploit that through innovation to the maximum extent possible, but eventually you run out of options to innovate on that set of rails. Its limitations are too structural for you to change. Um, in relation to card companies, um, ISO 8583 prescribes the format of the authorization method, a message. And if you want to change that to add more value, to increase data, to provide more functionality, you have to change literally millions of um, organizations and millions of sites. It's too hard. At a certain point, the network is too big. 
So you run out of capacity to innovate on a particular set of rails. And I think what we're seeing is, is in the world's um, long-standing and highly successful payment systems, that's now happening. And, and we are on the hunt for evolutions. Crypto is one of those, but not the only one. And actually, statistically speaking, not the most successful one at the moment, right? The guys who are innovating and the guys who are adding significant volume and value are actually the closed loop systems that the other panelists were talking about, the WeChats and the Alipays of this world. They are leaps and bounds ahead of crypto in terms of adding value on new sets of rails, right? And so we are in the middle of this step change of networks. And once we get to a new set of rails, we're going to have to build interoperability links and we're going to have to innovate on top of those rails for a while until we get to the next phase. That's kind of where we are in the evolution of these of these products. But Dominic, can I just pick up on something that uh, Chris has said? Um, mm -hmm. And that is the, the, the role of the banks versus car manufacturers, because I think that's an interesting thing just to focus on for a second. Um, the, you know, the creation of SWIFT and all the good things that came from that um, wasn't by a plan. It was a result of the Herstatt financial crisis in 1974. <laughs> um, Never waste a good crisis, Nick. <laughs> that, well, you know, interestingly, global innovation in financial services, surprisingly, often comes just after a massive mess. It's the way, the way yeah, we tend to do absolutely. it. Absolutely. It's uh, absolutely clear, right. clear up absolutely afterwards. Right. But, you know, you know, it was developed, it's great, it provides a service and it works. So, you know, it gets ticks for all of that. But part of the issue that, you know, if you look at the, the systems that we have, you know, around the world, is they've been built for the lowest common denominator of bank. And so what you end up doing is you create a payment system that will work for your customers. Whereas, and your customers are the banks, they're not the customers of the bank. There's a big difference to that. Um, and... If you then go, take your analogy back to the car manufacturers, that's entirely the opposite. The car manufacturers will compete with different paint colors, different you know, designs and all the rest of it. And I think that we've been held back to a degree by trying to reduce competition or, or create level playing fields for banks in countries, as opposed to letting the market dictate who can deliver the best service, which is what happens with you know, normal supply and demand. Well, I, yeah, I mean, there's always a balancing act, isn't there, between wh which standards to hold rigid and which to allow variation on, right? Car manufacturers have to build cars that stay on the roads that are a certain width. There's a standard they've got to conform to. It's only a weak one, right? The payment the systems have got to conform to much stricter, stricter standards. I mean, at the risk of being pedantic here, I, th I think, Nick, you, you were referring to CLS was created by the, by the Herstat crisis. The origin of SWIFT is in, in some ways more interesting. It was it was created by the other banks to prevent City taking over cross-border payments. That's true. And, and I, I wonder when listening to Chris, and I'm interested in your view on this, Nick, and, and maybe CLS suffers from a variant of the same problem, which is that the banks own the infrastructure and therefore they kind of control the pace of change, if not retain the ability to obstruct change altogether. Right. Actually, right. That, that, so there's a, a capture problem. That, that's quite an interesting point. You know, this is, please, this is not a sales pitch, but I've got to reference a business I'm involved in for this to make sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we built this global infrastructure for RTGS Global, which is a brand new um, uh, FMI, global uh, FMI up, built and operational. Um, and we have been very strongly encouraged by various regulators that we're talking to not to have banks as shareholders, to retain the independence of that network um, because we do something which um, is, is cunningly called the auditor of bilateral liquidity. 
so that in the event of a bank resolution, we can confirm the liquidity that the bank was holding in relation to its obligations. Um, and there was a view that um, you know, that would be better done if the, the company providing that uh, was neutral and independent. So I think there is a change coming and there is, there is, there is a problem. The card schemes as well have experienced this where you know, all of your customers are your members and you are your shareholders. It's, uh, it creates for a, a very, very difficult governance process. I'm going to come on in a minute to, to sources of different infrastructures. That's a very interesting uh, point you've just made, Nick, and maybe there are other examples that we can come up with. But I'd like to, to address a question that Dan Feeney has, has raised, and it's an interesting one. He says, if these closed loop networks like WeChat and Alipay are now being copied in the West by the partnerships between Apple and Stripe, for example, does this not defeat the ambitions of open finance and open data across borders and jurisdictions? In other words, is this another example of the incumbents closing ranks, a new type of incumbent here, preventing change actually occurring. Um, Joe, you brought up the you brought up the question of these these closed loop networks. Should we feel uncomfortable about what's happening between Apple and Stripe? I don't think so. Um, I, I, these wallets are led by people's choice, right? And mm. I mean, I fundamentally like to keep the customer at the centre of how how a market will move. Um, but you do need some true innovation going on with people that do understand payment schemes. But the, 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 regulate, the regulations in each jurisdiction usually hold to account or try to hold to account how these, how these mechanisms of value transfer you know, operate. It, it probably is missing a trick where you, you don't have to have a license to move money. That's not fair, right? Because the, unless an entity actually is participating properly, um, that's where the world I'm in today with, with our company, you're not being able to track back to the regulator the actual full details of the payment message itself, the, the data. But I think it's more important that there becomes interoperability. I, and this is where, this is where a, a stable coin, or at the moment, it's not crypto, but some sort of mechanism where I can value something back to a fiat and transfer that value back because we only really can spend in fiat today as a true value of what I understand because that's all I earn money in. I'm not talking about speculative products, but as long as you can swap value back to one source and back to another, then you could reuse those wallets. But the problem is, is that they, the new ones have been set up in their own closed loops on their own platform. And then you have to use a standard that exists to talk to another mechanism. And the, the latest flavor of this is, of course, you know, ISO 20022. Um, unless, but, but once again, there's a limitation within that because there's no agreement on those standards to the nth degree. So I think it's a good thing that they are, they are surging ahead and proving that it's possible. Um, I just foresee that there's going to be, um, I have to close down one account, withdraw my money back to a central source and then fund another account to actually get rid of it. There should be a, a link between the two. Um, if you look at open banking in the UK, there's not that interoperability across that without using a third party in between. But those third parties also have to join the network to participate. I think that's the big restriction. Um, Nick talked about marketplaces being able to, anybody being able to participate. That's where it's got to head for pure competition. It, look, it, Go on, Chris. No, Dominic, sorry, uh, yeah. if I may, the, the, um, the, the, this is not a new problem. This is a classic problem of um, competition amongst networks 
which first I think came up for regulators in telecommunications and in mobile telephony, and now is coming very strongly into payments. But it's fundamentally the same problem, which is once you've got an incumbent who has the benefit of the network effect, he's got the reach across the market and he's got all of that power, he's naturally going to be disinclined to allow upstart competing networks to connect to him, uh, you know, the so-called multi-homing problem, because uh, that that's only going to be detrimental to him. He'd rather have, a you know, the total control of a slightly smaller piece of the pie, basically, right? Um, whereas, yeah, whereas the little guy wants exactly the opposite. He wants to piggyback on the reach, network reach of the big guy uh, and, and innovate off the back of that. And generally speaking, the regulatory answer is to say the little guy gets to win in that argument because the net benefit to society is more innovation from that, right? It, so, so in other words, there is some way of ensuring that the littler network gets interoperability with the big network and gets the opportunity to compete and still have the reach without having to construct its own alternative network. And that, in fact, is the way these problems are going to be resolved in payments, just as they were and are in telecommunications. It's going to take a while, you know, so you can see the Chinese government, for example, grappling with this problem with WeChat and Alipay right now. They are enforcing interoperability into those wallet systems um, as new players come along. And I think they're absolutely right to do so. The, the, um, the opportunity for development is too great to pass up, you know. So the answer to Dan Feeney's question is the regulatory competition authorities need to intervene here to make sure that customers still have a choice and, and that choice is delivered to them through interoperability between what are previously Absolutely. closed networks. Okay. Which isn't okay. always easy, but it's got to be done. <laughs> okay. yeah, no one's going to take the opportunity to do it willingly. I mean, some will, but because they see that the customer's leading that journey, but um, you get stuck with the, I've built the asset, I want to sweat it, right? Um, sure. Well, we've, exactly. we've, had a, we've had a question about stable coins. I'll just put that to one side for a minute because I'd like to move on to types of money that we can use in just a second. Before we do, uh, Chris, you raised um, telecommunications. We've talked about new rails, different types of rails. Um, in PESA, which I know is something you know you know quite a bit about, was an example of a, of a payment system running on entirely new rails. In that case, the, the telecommunications system. Um, you know, delivered to, to people's mobile telephones in, in Kenya to start with. And that allows money to be, you know, to be held other than in a bank account, but it still requires you to kind of charge it with, with money from a bank account or, or with cash um, before you can actually redeem it or spend it. So um, this is quite a good segue, in fact, into, into talking about new forms of money. Would it ever yeah. have made sense or would it make sense even now for Impesa to think about issuing its own currency? creating another one, yeah. these closed networks, which value could be transferred within. Okay, so so um, I'm going to draw a distinction here because I think it's the really critical distinction to think about crypto with, right? But you don't, but it's very relevant to M-Pesa and indeed to the WeChats and Alipays of the world as well. I think there's a big difference between creating your own currency and creating your own money. And I think it's very important that we that you know the, the guys who are in, in, in control of these large platforms they're thinking about that from that perspective creating our own money is fine if you if you get people to convert their hard-earned yuan into um, uh, it, uh, deposits on the WeChat account or their hard-earned um, uh, Kenyan dollars onto the onto the um, Mpesa platform uh, shillings I'm sorry aren't they um, mm -hmm. then you know um, you've actually taken their money and turned it into a private obligation it's it's now private money but it's still kenyan currency or 
Chinese currency, as the case may be, right? It's still um, in, denominated in the national currency. That is a much more efficient way of proceeding for the platform than trying to create your own currency. And I think Bitcoin and indeed uh, DM and its various iterations have tended to prove this thesis, right? Um, if you create your own currency, you're starting at the hardest possible place because that's where the network effects are biggest. If you want to create your own currency, it's useless until a very large number of people want to accept it. Whereas if you want to create your own money, but use the, the national currency, you get that reach automatically, straightforward, right? Because, because your product can be easily converted into every other type of monetary, money, money that uses that currency. So my short answer to your question is no, it almost certainly wouldn't make sense to create your own currency. And indeed, um, Facebook went through exactly this iteration by starting out with their own currency and gradually evolving their attempted product into being what amounted to a stable coin or something denominated in national currency, right? Yeah. Uh, in the end, I think they've now backed away, haven't they? But, but uh, yeah, they've, um, sold, they've sold the business, yeah. In my mind, there was no doubt that they were going to end up with a product which was interoperable with national currency because to do otherwise is just working too hard against the network effects that already exist, right? Okay. So, so um, you know, and what you've got to remember about M-Pesa and many of the new providers of money is that money isn't their main business, hey? It's an adjunct. It's an add-on to a platform business, which is all about reaching the maximum number of people and providing the maximum number of services to them. And all of these new new um, monetary forms that we're going to see in the next few years will be in the same category. Money is only a part of the total picture that they offer. They want your eyeballs and they want your attention and they want it on their platform. Oh, okay. uh, and uh, variations on that theme uh, are, are what will drive money in the future. Okay. Let's, let's talk Dominic, about I, Dominic, I, I'm just on M-Pesa. Um, I had breakfast at an IMF conference with the governor of the Kenyan Central Bank talking about M-Pesa. Um, and this was just when they were going through being regulated. Um, and I think this point is interesting because it plays into the wider discussion we're having today. Mm -hmm. um, his view and his concern why M-Pesa became regulated was because the word M-Pesa is Swahili for money. And their concern as the regulator was that Safaricom, who was the Vodafone operator over there, if they got into any sort of distress or failure or whatever, and the M-Pesa project failed, the fact that many people in the Kenyan villages were using the M-Pesa product, which was a product name of Safaricom, but meant money to them. If that for any reason disappeared, it could impact their belief in the core currency that existed in the country. And I think that's quite an interesting approach when we now start talking about cryptocurrencies, fiat currencies and all the rest of it. Um, mm -hmm. that there could be some you know, laws of unintended consequences emerging here. Yeah. Well, we certainly expect central banks to want to retain complete control of monetary sovereignty, if you like. And I, I, I just, this is a, a good segue into talking about new forms of money. And I'll just read a question we've had from uh, Abdus Sabur. Uh, I, I think it's relevant to this as well. I'd like you to think about it rather than answer it straight away. It says, if the value of stablecoin is equal to fiat currency, then what's the point of stablecoin? Just because stablecoin is digital makes no sense, since fiat currency is also digital with our consumers pay today using digital wallets rather than paper cash. I suspect the answer to that lies somewhere in, in, in uh, blockchain networks and CBDC, and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to answer that. But if I, I've drawn up a list here of new forms of money I think could, could come about. The cryptocurrencies you referred to, Chris, like Bitcoin, um, which, which are a claim on nobody and nothing. Uh, they're pure digital creation. That's one form, these are cryptocurrencies. Stable coins, which Abdus is referring to, and you, uh, Joe, have referred to as well. 
Um, you know, these are backed by deposits as a claim on, on the pile of money in a bank or somewhere else. Uh, then you've got these well, someone says they're backed by deposits. Whether they are or not seems to be yeah. a bit of a debate uh, right now. But <laughs> Indeed, and then we have seen some stable coins carry on without being able to prove that they've got the deposits in place. You're right. A, a Indeed. Sort of, a sort of wire card model. Um, uh, and then there's, there's asset-backed uh, coins. These are backed by oil or gold or whatever. You have program programmable money. This is kind of conditional money. So if something happens or you become entitled to something, this money can actually be spent or not spent if you want to spend it on tobacco or uh, some other drugs or some other disapproved activity. Then there's pure e-money. These are like tokens, um, which can, which are usually backed again by, by, by deposits. And then this is a sort of Dave Birch idea. You can have these IBM or Manchester United dollars. You can show your affiliations by, you know, subscribing in effect to, to currencies which match your values or your enthusiasms. Um, and then finally, you've got these central bank digital currencies, which we, we've seen that three of these issued. And we've got nearly 100 other central banks around the world looking at doing this. And I think this is the beginning of the answer to Abdus's question, uh, which is basically fiat currency, central bank money issued in digital form. Contrary to what Abdus says, it, it's not yet available on a, on a ledger yet, fiat currency in digital form, is it? Now, I'm, I'm just wondering, if you look at these various forms of money, um, which of these do we think is going to survive? I think CBDCs are pretty clearly going to survive. Um, but Chris, you're probably best placed to answer this, given everything you've just you've just said. I think I think you're kind of saying that we can expect stable coins, e-money, CBDCs to survive. Anything backed by something which is rooted in the network effects of central bank money is going to survive. Anything else, probably not. Well, and it certainly has better prospects anyway. So let's let's take a step back and look at the history of money. And don't forget um, this question too. Yeah, no, abs absolutely, absolutely. What's the point of a stablecoin? I'm I'm going to try and get to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so you know the original form of money in in uh, as it evolved was about a publicly issued a liability a public claim if you like, um, which derived its authority from the sovereign's power and possibly from the sovereign's taxing power. Okay. Um, but money, that form of money was very limited in terms of the innovation that you could do with it. While it was in physical form, there wasn't that much you could do to make it work better or to make it more usable, if you like. So the genius of banking was to convert that public claim into a private claim against the bank. That added some risk because, you know, obviously if I have a deposit in the bank, that's a claim against the bank. It's not a claim against the sovereign, right? But uh, inside the bank, the opportunity to do clever things with that money was much greater. This is where we get checks from. This is where we get credit cards from. This is where we get all the other multifarious financial instru instruments like letters of credit and so forth. So, so um, you know, the, the evolution of money demonstrated this conversion of the monetary form while restraining, while retaining the currency in order to create better innovation and more usability for customers. Um, it's a way of having your cake and eating it, if you think about it. The currency delivers the network effect, it delivers the reach. My dollar in one bank is the same as somebody else's dollar in another bank. They're fully convertible. I don't have to worry about being able to buy or sell my dollars. Um, but I still get the innovation that the bank can deliver on top of my money, right? That's the having the cake and eating it bit. Now, in my mind, what's happening with crypto and specifically stable coins 
is likely to follow some, some kind of similar course. In other words, there is very likely to be a public claim that is tokenized. That's a CBDC, right? That is a, a, a promise by the sovereign, so it's very, very low risk, but it is in a tokenized digital form which enables certain things to happen which can't happen in physical form. The money can be embedded in transactions. The money can be have conditions placed on it, can be self-executing, et cetera. That's not the end of the innovation, though. I don't think that's where um, the world's going to stop. I think that the economies that will really prosper from this will add stable coins that are interoperable with those CBDCs. So these are private claims. These are private money like a bank account, which allow the private organisations to innovate and to add value on top of the CBDC, if you will. And if the CBDCs are designed in that way, we are likely, in my view, to see the same kind of flowering of digital innovation and new products, which I can't even imagine, that we actually saw from the banking system. So, so, so the answer to Abdus's question is, is, is the answer to Abdus's what's the point is, of us? What's the point of a stablecoin? Is to be the sort of commercial what the bank money does, analog of central bank money and a CBDC, right? Right. the The, the point of the stablecoin is that it takes, uh, it takes the benefit of being in a universal currency, so it's going to be widely accepted and easy to um, sell and buy, but allows a private organisation to innovate and add digital value on top of that currency. Uh, can, in the can same... These, can these stable coins be issued by non-banks? Uh, well, so... Um, in order to answer that, you have to actually go into what is a bank, which is a bit of a big well, we'll, question. We'll, but perhaps, we'll, perhaps we'll come back to that because I think the, look, if stablecoins take off, they do have big implications for the funding of banks, don't they? Yeah, well, let me but let me answer it by saying, if you're going to have well-functioning stablecoins in your economy, they are going to have to be intensely regulated. The issuers of those stablecoins are going to have to be intensely regulated. The irony of this is, of course, that the crypto idea of full decentralization and having nobody in charge that's not going to happen in the monetary world. Whether it happens in other types of crypto, I'm not going to comment. But, but mm. in the monetary world, there's going to have to be someone responsible for the currency, and that person is going to have to be quite heavily regulated in the same way as banks are. Joe, you, you brought up the question of, of keeping the customer at the centre of things. And listening to Chris, I was thinking that fiat currencies are called fiat for a very real reason. You know, governments say, well, this is the currency you will use as money within the borders of this nation state. And it's possible to conceive that actually businesses on the one hand and consumers on another, in other words, customers, could determine whether a privately issued currency succeeds as a form of payment or a form of money simply by deciding to accept it. I know McDonald's could decide it accepts you can pay for its products with Bitcoin. Yeah. Or, you know, John Lewis decides you can use Ether to purchase a new fridge. Uh, similarly, consumers could say, well, I'm only going to pay for my fridge with Ether or Bitcoin. So you, there could be a consumer-driven network effect. It doesn't happen, you know, central banks have this power to impose network effects on people, if you like. But consumers and businesses could generate them at the same time, couldn't they, just by choosing to use or not use a currency? Yeah, I, I think it's already happened. You, it's a loyalty play, right? I mean, you... you you can create value in loyalty, which if you can transfer it back to the fiat, but let's use an, an Avios point, right? Mm -hmm. I can realize that for the value of a flight. It's effectively a digital value that can be interoperable back to a flight, but can I convert it back in dollars or spend it somewhere else? Sometimes, but 
that that's a consumer voting that I want to go with that spectrum mm -hmm. rather than perhaps another airline. And you've seen, I mean, I've only been in the UK six years, but Nectar as an effect, you know, points, people follow these points and they, they generate these points. It's no different in my mind, right? Because people are choosing which they want to align themselves with that is a store of value the problem is it's not really that interoperable, right? Like a stable coin could be. Exactly. That, yeah. That's the problem. It's so not it's money. Not. You can't spend it. You can't spend your Avios or anything but a, but a flight to somewhere. And therefore it results in disappointment and consumers and businesses move away from it if it doesn't fit their use cases. Right. Mm -hmm. So to generalise that a little bit, there's, there's very few economies which have more than a couple of base currencies, mm. not money, but currencies. There are a few economies that have two currencies for reasons that usually have to do with the weakness of the national currency. Yeah. Very, very few that have more than two as routine-based currencies. Nick, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say, don't we already have a stable coin in the UK that's issued by the Bank of England? I'm certain we do. <laughs> because if you look on every single banknote, it says, I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of X, the value of the banknote, five or 10 pounds. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're actually promising that a piece of paper has a value to something. So, yeah. you know, argu arguably, we've, we've been there for, for a, a good number of years, as opposed to America, which just says, in God, we trust on their banknotes. So takes an, an alternative <laughs> view to that problem. Mm -hmm. But I think the, yeah. the other issue here is, we, you know, we talk about CBTCs and stable coins and all the rest of it. There is one stature of money, one flavour of money at the central bank, which is the base upon which every transaction is built upon. And that's the wholesale money that moves between the banks and it moves between the central banks. If we address the issue of um, a wholesale CBDC, right, as a foundation platform for all of this and said, right, forget about the market participants, just part of the competition thing, which I'm mass massively keen on, but you have to start somewhere. Um, park that for a second and say, okay, the funds that we are held within the reserve accounts within the central banks, these actually are wholesale CBDCs. They're not CBDCs at a retail level, they're wholesale between the, between the banks. What that does is start to remove the credit risk that exists in the marketplace, which is significant, mm -hmm. right? It takes away the prospects of a, an, another you know, 2007 Lehman's event. But what that also does is build, builds a very, very strong platform for everything else to fall underneath it it actually puts a whole question mark as to whether you require payment schemes and starts to fundamentally question the infrastructure and capability that we've got. It definitely questions whether you need a national stable coin, because as I've just said, we've already got it. And Tom Mutton, who's at the Bank of England in the UK, and I both feel that this approach to the treatment of reserve accounts, A, is probably there, B, doesn't require any tokenization or cryptonization because it's within a closed user group. And you've only got 180 central banks around the world to adopt this to create a massively strong change to the global financial infrastructure, which the rest of the marketplace would then start to benefit from. Sorry, so I think I just want to be clear on what you're saying. Because so, uh, are you saying one currency for those 180 central banks? Are no, you talking no, no, about no, they no, all have no, their no. own separate currencies? They, they maintain their own, their own currency. But doesn't that okay. doesn't that doesn't that drive innovation out of the system? In no, effect, no, no. central bank currencies dominate, and so we lose all the all the interesting experiments that are going on with stable coins and 
all those other money, new money types I mentioned. I think I think the experimentation will continue, but you know, there's the, you have to you know build innovation, create things for a purpose, not just because it's a great idea. Um, and I think that you know we we've had since 1994 a lady who sits in our office every day called Mrs. Smith of Three Acacia Gardens, and she has to understand what we're talking about. And quite often you get into you know discussions. You know you, you know you will have them as many as I do, Dominic, with people with fantastic ideas. But the commercial reality of who's going to adopt them and use them uh, is, is absent. And I, I think that one of the things about sorting out the core infrastructure that provides immediate benefits for businesses and consumers today with the systems that they use today, then will probably promote the real innovation that we need to develop the high speed um, you know, movement of money, you know, address all of the identity verification, fin crime, all the other things which we're not talking about today, but fall out of the, the monetary side uh, of the, the, the discussion um, that, that we're exploring during this today's this, um, event. What, what I, Nick, what I would ask Mrs. Smith of Acacia Gardens is whether she's happy with the service she gets from her existing retail bank. And I, and I, and I would ask her that, I would ask her that because I think that if we did, let's imagine we did get um, a world of, of CBDC for wholesale banks, uh, people who have reserves at central banks can, can yeah. deal in that. We replace the present way in which banks create um, commercial bank money by, by making loans, by extrapolating from their deposit base, if you like. So stable coins would have this, and CBDCs both have this risk in them that they strip banks of their of their funding, That's exactly uh, their, right. base, their deposit base. Exactly. So. Um, what if we embraced that world? So, well, actually, let's get new types of financial institution along. Let's let stable coins let, let rip um, and assume that we can still create credit, can still create credit intermediation, can still do counterparty credit risk assessment. All those things which banks do, they don't just make money. They also perform economic functions. But those could possibly be done by a different type of institution. And one obvious type of institution to do it would be some kind of infrastructure and Nick, you're, a, you're an infrastructure builder, you're an infrastructure expert. What if we just had a central clearing infrastructure and loads of stable coins and no banks? Huh. Yeah, not a, I, I don't think I'd even dream of that one. Um, but um, I, I think the, prob the problem that you've got is you've got, um, you know, we, we've got enough problems in the way the market works without adding that one into it, I think, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, I think that you've got to recognize that, you know, countries have their own currencies, they, they recognize their own currencies. Um, and, you know, if you go into France, many of the gross, small grocery shops in towns regret the day they ever lost the French franc um, because it was their national identity disappeared out of the door. Um, and I, I think that, you know, money is important to, to, to all of us, you know, even in the UK where, you know, um, stable um, projects, stablecoin projects have been tested, you know, in Brighton and Bristol, they've always ended up being called something pounds, um, which I think sort of emphasises that. Um, I think there is a benefit for a new market infrastructure, but the market infrastructure has to deal with the, the national requirements of sovereignty of their currency and not try and create a, a super overarching um, new currency. Um, you know, I, I just I can't see, see that being re really likely to happen. Um, but the, the infrastructure to provide atomic settlement and real time liquidity um, and allow you to move money 24 by 7 by 365 which going back to your point about what Mrs. Smith wants from her bank, she wants to know that if she pays some money to her son in Australia because he's run out of money and he's on holiday and he needs to go to buy a beer, that it gets into his account in 300 milliseconds and he can go to an ATM in Sydney and take the cash out and go down the pub. 
that's the service that she's looking for. Um, and, and I think that yeah. fixing the all, top all of which is true problem, in Australia today, of course, all yeah, of which yeah. is true in Australia today, right? So the cross border thing is the problem there, not the uh, efficiency of the systems, right? Correct. I mean, you've got but, I mean, the, but, the Australian system. I, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time with your regulators down there. Um, is it, a, a great system. It's been, you know, it's very, very well engineered. It's on a par with the Indian system, um, which is equally uh, resiliently built. I mean, a reserve bank in India is looking at whether they can manage the amount of financial friction costs they've reduced last year uh, in their first full year of operation. Um, you know, I, I think there's some massive innovations going on at a domestic level, which is why I don't think the global super network has got legs. It's just, you know, it needs to yeah. connect those um, uh, those domestic pay rails, payment rails, deliver at high speed inefficiency to them um, and deal with the, you know, settlement FX and credit risks associated with the payments so that everybody knows the money is good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dan Feeney has asked a follow-up question, which I think your answer to which will be, to Nick, will be yes, which is, will government-backed fiat currencies still be around in 2040? I think your answer, Nick, is yes, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I can't. I, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And Joe, you'd say yes to that, would you? I would, I would say yes. <laughs> uh, and Chris, would you say yes? So um, qualified, yes. I actually think they're, they're going to be given a run for their money by very large cross-border platforms, which may at some stage in the future uh, be large enough and have enough reach to start thinking about their own currency. So this is the sort of the idea of a Facebook dollar eventually becoming viable simply because Facebook has so many users and they spend so much time on that platform. But Chris, can right. I pick you up on that? The, 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 the issue with Libra was the amount of fiat liquidity it would drag out of the marketplace and put into a single yeah. location. Yeah. And what that would mean is the Facebook user who then wanted a car loan from their bank wouldn't be able to get it. Uh, because the bank couldn't lend the money that, that that's you know a global financial crisis in the making well so, somebody, but, somebody but, else could lend the money was was this was the was the point um and I, and, I, I, and the bank could be on facebook lending 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 libra slash dm right well, so, meta, so it could be in meta lending now of course yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I see that as a transitional problem I, i'm not saying this is going to happen what i'm saying is these things are all about network effects and there are some incredibly large networks developing that right now which are not about money they're actually about people's eyeballs and attention and their yeah. uh, communities and all the rest of it right uh, and um, those things um, are going to reach a, a point where they are larger than a lot of national governments they in terms have. of their their reach yeah actually they yeah. fit straight into Dominic's point what they're doing is delivering customer service which the incumbent banks aren't doing no. sure except that Right now, of course, most people don't spend so much of their time on Facebook that, that that's a viable option, that they would live entirely in Facebook. But that's clearly where Mark Zuckerberg wants us to go, right? That's what Meta's all about. Let's spend all our time mm -hmm. in his universe, right? And, and it's absolutely the avowed aim of the WeChats of this world. You know, mm -hmm. they, they want your eyeballs and they want them all the time. At a point where someone gets there, there's no reason why they couldn't then bringing their own currency around that reach, around that network reach. There's an interesting question emerging here about how the, the world, the world has somewhat, somewhat been bifurcated. You've got these PSBs doing more efficient, more convenient, faster payments on the one hand, and you've got the banks doing all those old fashioned things like taking in deposits, making loans, assessing credit and so on. And John Falk asks a question here. He says, why not do a quick poll of the audience for non-core services from their bank, e.g. FX? Can't do that, John, but I, I, I get the point you're making. 
the purpose would be to you know find out who's satisfied with their current main bank. He says, for myself, I have my traditional UK clearer for all my regular transactions. So you put your direct debits and pay your energy bill from your bank account, but then you use Revolut to travel. You know, you're going to France, you load up your Revolut with with some euros um, uh, to to get the you know get your travel payments done. And the same question arises for banks. So we're in this this difficult world, whereas some of you have pointed out the likes of Alipay and WeChat are going to create these closed networks. They want you to be in there all the time, doing everything through them, like a sort of, you know, including a federated identity, you access all these services. And the metaverse is just that on steroids, really, isn't it? So uh, that, that is the risk and needs obviously needs some regulatory attention. But what about if, what about if we think, and, and we're into our last 15 minutes or so, so maybe this is a good way to, to, to end our discussion is to think about how you reintegrate these. Is data the, the best way to think about it? What I, what I outlined at the outset, that you as the consumer own all your own data, including the transactions which you do through your, through your bank. And then you make those available to people who want to assess your credit. Um, you decide which shop in the metaverse or wherever else it is you want, to, you want to shop in, and you make available what data you need to get that transaction done. And that transaction is efficient because it brings together lots of different forms of data. It's like the open banking dream become an open data economy, in which the consumer is sovereign, they're using their data to, to spend uh, and sell and, and transact in all sorts of ways, much more efficiently, much more, much more quickly. Um, I'm sort of rambling a bit here, but is, it, 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 Joe, perhaps you could, you could help me here. Can, is, is, if we imagine the future of payments as, the, as being more about data, than about the movement of value. Am I onto yeah. something? Are we onto something there? Yeah, when Nick was talking, I, I, I hold a view. When Nick was talking about building out the infrastructure before, I found myself thinking that, you know, there's been a lot of work done to, to fix payment rails, and there's been a lot of talk about fixing liquidity and money movement. But there hasn't been a lot of work done to combine the two as one unit of data transfer, right? So, the, these these universes that are going to emerge where I can choose, it, it needs to be fair so everybody can participate as a marketplace because that's what the phenomena is emerging. Whether, whether or not I choose to buy something from one merchant in the marketplace in the metaverse or another merchant is still my choice. Who I share that data with is my choice. My, my problem is, is that I don't think there should be two separate systems. I mean, I think the money should carry the data as I was a record of it, because I, I deal with the other side of it, which is that the, the regulators trying to track, you know, where illicit funds are moving. And the problem that emerges is they've never got a complete picture of how that money moved because it's, it's detached from the actual monetary movement as a payment message, right? But you get into building a new infrastructure and you build a new CBDC or it's stabilised, whichever you want to call it. It's a unit of data of value because most money is just data today, right? It's on a ledger. It's on a balance sheet. But why can't that contain who owns it at that point in time? Then you've truly started to revolutionise money because it's now storing who owns it, right? Now, people will compete for you, your identity on these platforms, but you still have choice about where I want my money to sit and where I want it to move to once I pass it over. So I might pass it to Nick. And now Nick is the owner of that money and all of his data identity is stored, that money, if he chooses to do so, or a light touch of it. 
It's similar mm. to what's happening in Australia, Chris, with pay ID, right? You know, mm. I, I am obfuscating everything I don't really want to share, but I've got a reference point, whether it's physical to me or I virtualize it. Um, and I use that as the portability of where I shop and where I live. Which, done right, should increase competition rather than the reverse. You can exactly. move your pay ID from one bank to another. Yeah. So, yeah, so that those things are possible. I might. I will stay loyal to brands, whether I choose to buy a, a Tesla or I buy a Porsche, right? Those brands will compete for that same unit of my value. And they probably want to both sell on the same marketplace where I spend most of my time. So I don't see that changing. I just see it making it more interoperable. Well, Nick, I find that rather an, an, an exciting vision uh, in which we have a new infrastructure consisting, if you like, of a sort of network of networks in which data flows fairly freely, but at the behest of the end owner, the consumer, whether it's a consumer or a, or a business. And in a way, it transforms the entire direction of travel within the economy, because instead of large corporations merchandising things to you, you start to, you know, make your data available to those organizations which you want to do business with because you've researched them through this network of networks of, of data before. Yeah. So you're kind Dominic, of... Dominic, um, I don't want to rain on your parade, <laughs> but, but uh, I think the big challenge with that vision is that consumers, generally speaking, will not be able to manage their own data. It'll be too complex a task. They will need to have service provision and quite sophisticated service provision to enable them to do that. Yeah. That has to be provided by some organisation. That organisation now becomes the regulatory focus. Is it providing a good service? Is it yeah. doing the right thing by the consumers? Is it skimming a bit off the top? Blah, blah, blah. It's the same mm -hmm. thing as banking regulation in a way. So I think the big challenge there is how do you regulate these data gateways? Uh, and where's that going to go? Yeah, Dominic, going, going back to the, the points that um, Joe was making a second ago, um, the, the data structures and everything we built within the RTGS global network support everything that Joe's uh, aspiring to. Um, it allows um, equally um, data to be obfuscated so that effectively, you know, you're f making sure that your GDPR compliant and all the other regulatory issues that we that we have to fend with. Um, but by, you know, we started with a white piece of paper back in 2019 building this platform. Um, and effectively, it allows you to move at the, the wholesale level, not down at the consumer level. We don't go to, you know, where we're going isn't there. We're just trying to create the inefficiency between the central banks and the, and the, the retail banks that are centrally banked. And it's that narrow, that narrow cycle, because if we can get that working efficiently, then that will cascade down. Um, but we, we have a vision that how that will be used. We won't be using it, but it's the systems that we can then deploy to the banks. So we can deploy um, API connectivity into the banks to allow their, their business customers to have wholesale access in to real-time treasury and liquidity on the same platform to measure that within balances and limits, which their bank sets and the banks doing the banking bit and the businesses doing their business bit. And then taking that down another level, because we're only talking globally about 44,000 banks using networks and systems like this is not a huge number, uh, to let, then having the concept of distributed dynamic current account routing. What that then means is that, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got my smartphone here with my current account on or whatever. You know, I can wire to Joe and Chris the price of the pint that we agreed to before this meeting start, started, and it will go straight from my bank to their banks directly yeah. um, over, over the network. 
that can ha- that can have whatever data I want to put on it, whatever message I want to put on it, and it will be invisible to the banks because it will be private, but they will be the delivery service and they will earn something from that. Now, I see there's huge value in that. Where, where I start to get confused with some of the new things is that the cost of moving some of the proposed stablecoin transactions and certain the crypto transactions are more expensive than the existing card schemes and fiat transactions that we've got today. So what is the value of putting something in that costs more to do that doesn't actually deliver anything new? So I, th- I think that you know, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is either here or just around the corner. Um, but you know, businesses have to work. They're no guarantee of success. Mm-hmm. We're into our last four minutes, so perhaps just a, um, a, a kind of closing thought from from each of you would be would be good. Uh, and Joe, listening to, to Nick talk, then I thought one of the major beneficiaries of of a an open data financial economy. I can't think of a better term for it, but one in which um, data flows more freely between these networks of networks. Um, Nick has described banks who are actually pretty inefficient because they're managing their data inefficiently. And in fact, they don't know what their liquidity is because it's trapped across lots of different systems. Them and their counterparts are imposing this $15 trillion tax on on the global economy. You know, we can do this stuff better very clearly if we open our minds to to doing data better. And is is this, as you look forward, is this the, do the banks in a way deserve to fail because they're doing such a such a terrible job or are they going to be if you like the the major beneficiaries of this change can they are they they strong enough to put themselves in a position where they can benefit from some of the revolutionary changes we've talked about this afternoon yeah i i I don't think it's an absolute dominic I, i think if we take the bank out of the equation and there's people inside banks and some of them are very proactive in building out the right digital platforms and infrastructure to be able to move quickly, right? Um, That's what you should be looking for. You're looking for platforms that are extendable. And on the other side, next network that he's building, you're, you're forming a partnership there where you're looking at his roadmap too, right? If you're a bank, you're saying, okay, well, I will connect to you via an API. What's your roadmap look like? Because I'd be very interested to see what I need to think about to take right back up to that customer level. Banks that operate that way with that thinking will survive because now they're participants and they're evolving. Those that say, I'm putting a stake in the ground, I'm going to hardwire everything to, to you know, the new PAC 008 message standard. No, you're in big trouble because... That, that, that is saying that I will just follow whatever update comes every year. You're not thinking two, five, ten ahead. So I don't think it's absolute. The ones that choose to proactively participate and learn about the things that they can do for their customers will, will survive. And those that don't will, will find it very difficult to compete. Nick, I'd be interested in your, your thoughts on how the future is going to unfold, but let me just share with you a, a, an observation, an interesting observation Tanya Dias has made. She says, I use a brave internet browser, it's a DAP, uh, instead of Google, and they've revolutionized data privacy and advertising. Users get paid tokens in a digital wallet to share their data with advertisers, control of data in the user's hands instead of large corporations. So what I was describing about the consumer being sovereign over their own data is, is, is available now in the marketplace. So it's starting to starting to happen. So my question to you, Nick, is, is how well placed are the banks that you're, you're dealing with your new business to actually thrive in this world in which 
people are starting to own their own data and payment is becoming money holdings even are becoming basically a, a data set so banks need to reinvent themselves as data managers data processors whatever we want to call it how well placed do you think they are to do that given what you're seeing i think they're in a very very difficult position and it's, it's not completely a position of their own making either um, you know, we've had since 2014 the in, in the UK and, and I think now elsewhere, pretty much around the world, the emergence of, of what are known as challenger banks, which I, I personally think were badly named. Um, they should really have been called digital new banks because that's what they were. Mm-hmm. Um, by calling them challenger banks, unfortunately, they picked up a moniker with a regulator that they are akin to a new version of the incumbents. And so what they've done is they've lost their inability to um, be agile in the growth and use of technology, uh, which is a real issue. Um, That's the problem facing all the other banks, that their ability to be agile because of the oversight that they're getting at the moment from from regulators um, um, in relation to use of cloud and all the various other challenges which are coming down the road road, um, are, are really hampering their ability to embrace. So I think there's a, what's what's required, I think, is, you know, uh, either the Basel Committee, the BIS or the IMF, somebody needs to grasp this and say, look, we have to change the industry. All right. We can't, you know, turning a battleship or a cruiser in, in, in well, it's at sea, takes a long time and is slow. We need to parallel track some of this um, to effectively allow market change to happen. We need to allow competition to occur. We've got to recognise we can't have a system whereby we as a regulators think all banks must be treated the same. We're going to let some of them compete and some of them will get upset. We know when we have the meetings with the chairman of the banks, they'll moan at us. So be it. That's commerce. That's life. Uh, and I think that if we started to do that and let that happen, the benefits would be immense. They would drive down the value chain, I think, relatively quickly. Um, and um, I think then the benefits of all the innovation, which innovation is going to work, which you know, I, I, I certainly can never bet on what will work and what won't work. Um, we, we'll start to have the market, the consumer, be able to make that decision. And I think the, the browser example is a really good example of where it's going to. You know, do banks today want to allow their consumers that level of choice and access and control? Probably not. But the digital new banks do because that's what they were built on. Yeah, I suspect Google and Facebook and uh, Microsoft don't want to have that level of control either. Chris, a, a last word from you. Can, you. can you wave us out with some very wise observations? I know it's getting late there in Australia, <laughs> so I don't know how wise you can be. Because I have to engage brain. Look, um, I love talking about uh, the future of banks. Having never been a banker, I'm completely uh, unencumbered by knowledge here, but... But it seems to me that the nature of banking is fundamentally changing. We all walk around with this idea in our head of what a bank is. Yeah. I just don't think that'll be applicable within a few years. I think banks are going to have to pick specific aspects of their business and run with that. It'll be very rare bank that'll be able to be a full service traditional bank in the future. They're going to have to focus on being a platform or being a curator of service to their customers or, or being a specialist provider of a specific product, you know, the, the, the unbundling of their um, traditionally bundled activities is going on really rapidly as this new world of, of finance and payments emerges. So um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that pans out. Um, but I suspect in a few years' time, we won't really be talking about can banks survive anymore because they won't be recognisable anymore. 
Can they be the data managers that you referred to earlier that, that consumers would need? I think that is one product specialization that's a genuine opportunity for banks. And some banks are, are making a specialty of that already. They are saying, mm -hmm. I'm going to be a sort of curator of all of your data and information as a customer. I'm not going to lend you money anymore. I'm not even take your deposit. I'm going to pass you through to someone else, right? I want to mention any names, but there are banks that are starting to be experts at that, at curation. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Sadly, I think we'd better uh, stop at that point. It's been a fascinating discussion. I know it could go on. I'd like to thank our panellists, Nick Ogden from RTGS.Global, Chris Hamilton from the Hamilton Platform, Joe Higginson from Identity. And thank you also to, your, to our uh, audience for, for your many questions and, and your comments. Uh, but for now, it's goodbye from the four of us. <laughs>